Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations, Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word, story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Story time 110. It'll be going out on Tuesday the 25th of October rather than... Uh, Sunday the 23rd of October as planned. Jeff, uh, there are a number of reasons behind that. Mostly it's we're in the middle of the World Cup. We're making daily shows every day. Uh, I have been in Sydney feeling quite poorly, as anyone who listened to the daily show on Saturday can attest. Uh, you've been in Melbourne watching one of the, the greatest games of T20 cricket ever staged. Yes, so this will be a slightly different type of story time today. My plan or our plan is to do just a few new numbers, a few confirmations and then basically get out of here. We're going to throw a bit of red meat uh, to the Discord channel as well with numbers that we haven't quite been able to solve in our research window, uh, small as it was compared to some weeks. And then we'll um, get back to the dailies. Um, Hello, Jeff. Well, I think that's right. I think that's reasonable. Everybody's been sick. Um, We've, you, me, Winnie, we've all had our our Mm. times, which has made things more difficult over the last few days. But you can't stop us having a little bit of a flirtation with cricket history. Just a little, just a little one, just for just, a, just a little hour or so. Yeah, that, that's right. So uh, I think what we'll do to start this, Jeff, is you've ended up um, with a staggering story last night. You lend yourself to these things. You right place, right time. You know, you tend to come on the ball before a 100 score or the ball before a wicket's taken when on commentary. I've noticed you've got the Midas touch with these matters. I'm the very opposite, by the way. Uh, and you uh, yesterday uh, got called in, having not been scheduled to work for ABC, BBC, see on this tournament, uh, dragged into the commentary box at five minutes to midnight uh, to broadcast one of, as I say, the, if not the best T20, surely on the podium of, of uh, T20 internationals <laughs> played in front of 90,000 people at the at the cricket ground. Tell us about that. A lottery ticket situation, really. Um, yeah, it was rather than five minutes to midnight, it was about 10 past 5pm. 
when I got a call from Adam Mountford, the BBC producer, saying, uh, are you coming to the cricket today by any chance? Um, yes, yes, I'll, I'll be there. Okay, so um, poor old Jonathan Agnew had gone down with a an extremely husky voice. He'd, he'd arrived a couple of days ago and I think tried to do one game and then was... Uh, smashed with some kind of laryngitis or something, so he was he was at the game, but he was he was speaking very very sort of yes. voce, very sort of you know late night love song dedications kind <laughs> of uh, kind of vibes, and and just couldn't get through it. It was so loud, like even a couple of hours before the game, the crowd was so loud yeah. that he was he was saying, "There's no point trying to compete with this." You know, I'll I'll do a bad job of the call, and so you know, I mean that that is impressive professionalism to say I'm going to count myself out. You know, that's like. Matthew Stokes' 2009 preliminary final sort of areas to say that, you know, the hamstring's not quite right. I, I won't be able to give the team what it needs. Yeah, yeah Jared, Jared Waitley tells a good story along those lines as well. Obviously, he's a massive Geelong supporter and, and Jeff, yeah. uh, as are you. And in 2007, it's the it's the breakthrough premiership. I think he told this story when Jared came on our podcast about four or five years ago when we were in right. South Africa. But he, he couldn't get through the grand final because his voice went. And he just had to kind of hand the baton over. So I suppose you probably woke up that morning thinking, I'm a chance to call Geelong's first premiership since 1963. Mm. It had to be subbed out and, and do a different job on, on the radio that day because his voice wasn't up to it. And yes, I can uh, empathise with uh, Aggers there because uh, mine's been absolutely gone. I, yeah. I, it's just strong enough to record this podcast, but I'm not 100% sure I'll be able to get through the mm. daily later tonight unless I whisper to you down the phone line. So we'll see. Well, that, that's another reason why we delayed recording this because you're when you recorded the daily with me on Thursday, I think it was. You yes. were, you were, you were gone. You were, you were whispering that show as well. So, um, yeah. So I, I got the call. I, I said I was going to be there. I was also down to do the Guardian live blog. So, um, God bless Mike Heitner who agreed to come in, and and Simon Burton who who both gave me a, a, a chop out in the middle of the innings to come in and cover a few overs. So I was doing both jobs at the same time. And yeah, just got parachuted into the comm box for 90 plus thousand people at the MCG. I mean, you know, at, at our home ground, at, at a ground we've yeah, both been to yeah. so many times and, and to see it in this different mood and to hear it and to, to see all of the seats packed up to the rafters and then suddenly being on air and thinking, bloody hell, what's going on here? And, you know, a quiet few overs. And then Iftikhar Ahmed goes absolutely nuts mm. and starts smashing Akshat Patel all over the place. And I couldn't believe my luck. It was it was a, a thrilling thing to be a part of and, to, and to, to sit there and watch those final stages and be back on the OBO and trying to punch that into the live blog and uh, make sure that everybody was up to date with, with both formats. An extraordinary night. I watched it. Uh, on television, albeit sort of half asleep. I, I mean, I was obviously not half asleep at the very, very end. It was quite exciting, but um, I wasn't sort of perhaps watching it as closely as I would be if we were covering, or if I were covering the game. What was the consensus on that? Um, two things, Jeff. The waist high full toss uh, in the last over, where I mean, m- my sort of immediate impression was he's like way down the track. How's that? Mm-hmm. How's that been given? And also whether much as it was in the 2019 World Cup final, when a couple of unusual events provided us to think about, you know, run it. Uh, overthrows off the back of Ben Stokes's bat on mm. that occasion, but overthrows off the stumps following a no ball. Yeah. Again, it's because uh, uh, in ordinary cricket, the type of cricket that you and I play, free hits aren't really a thing. Mm. It's only when you go to the very top table and in these types of competitions where there is such a thing as a free hit and thus where it would be 
um, a consideration because it, it did jar a little bit that someone can be bold and yet they can add three runs to it, as it did when Stokes had the runs come off the back of his bat, sure. by the way, in exactly the same fashion in 2019. Well, uh, you, you asked what the consensus was. I don't think there is any consensus. There's a lot of disagreement about these right. things predictably. But look, it looks pretty clear to me that it wasn't a no ball. I mean, he's he's shuffled forward out of his crease. It's barely, It's just about waist height. At the height of his waist at the point that it hits the toe of the bat but that's not where you measure it from the way the law is written says it's based on where the striker would have been standing upright at the crease yeah, yeah. not when it reaches not when it hits the bat and I've seen a bunch of people online saying oh no it's from when it first makes contact with the bat no it's not it's not what it says in the laws and yeah it was an example of an umpire I think being pressured by a player because um, Coley had been remonstrating about a previous full toss that wasn't called a no ball that also wasn't a no that's ball that's right yeah and then they called the next one and the umpires the front on umpire as Barrett explained gets more of a two-dimensional look at it they don't have the side on but the square leg umpire didn't help out and could have done and it was probably too line ball to call in real time anyway but they couldn't review it because they can only review it if a wicket falls you know if a catch is taken off that ball then they go and check whether it's too high but if it's hit for six they can't go back and check it so yeah maybe that's maybe that's where this moves to is the fielding sides remember again going back to that world cup final when Joffre archer bowled uh, a wide that you could easily make the case wasn't a wide sure. if you wanted to. And I, I know that he, uh, certainly at the time, it felt like it wasn't a wide and he was kind of hard done by. Mm-hmm. Whether fielding teams or batting teams should be able to review that kind of thing, yeah. whether DRS can be extended to sort of line ball decisions in addition to, to wicket decisions. I don't see why not. If it, you know tennis players can review line ball calls as to whether it kissed the line or yeah. not, I, I don't see a reason why. If there's a decision which affects the outcome of a match, then I don't see why it shouldn't be called. But it, look, that didn't necessarily, even if that wasn't called a no ball, it still would have been hit for six. They would have then needed seven off two balls to win and Coley would have been on strike and it would have been entirely possible that he would have got seven off two balls. You know, it, it would have been hard. It would have been more difficult. But, you know, Mohamed Nawaz follows up by bowling a wide after that. And then uh, when they have the ball that hits the stumps, all the Pakistan players stand around watching the ball run away and don't go and field it because they're not switched on enough to know that the ball is still alive. If you can't be dismissed by the ball hitting the stumps, then the ball's not dead after it hits the stumps. Yeah, I wonder whether that might be where they get to on that particular point is that if you are bowled off a free hit, the ball becomes dead. Even... Uh, the, uh, the wicketkeeper Rizwan was was remonstrating uh, with, I guess it was umpire Tucker, saying, "Hey, he's mm. bowled him. They can't run off the stumps." When, unless it's happened, of you probably you wouldn't know that. I mean, yeah, yeah. of course, in, in hindsight, of course you can, right? But in that exa- in that split second moment, unless you've been involved in a game where it's happened, yep. it, it might provide pause to think, "Hang on, surely this isn't fair income. But equally speaking, if if it's the old system where the standing umpire is giving the no ball, if if the bowler comes up and bowls, the umpire pops the arm out, says no ball, the ball hits yep. the stumps and rolls away, you can run. Those are buys. Like that's that's already been in the laws. True. That's not a quirk because of the free hit. That's already there on a no, no ball. Good point. In the same way that as that as the striker, you can hit the ball a mile up in the air off a free hit and run a couple of runs before the ball gets caught and you're not out caught and it's not a dead ball because it was caught, you know, because it would otherwise have been out normally, it's still a live ball. So the ball is alive until it's not in that situation. Mm. Um, and I don't actually mm. see a problem with that. I think that was Pakistan not being uh, switched on and, and not actually knowing the laws, as we've talked about before. A lot of players don't actually know the laws in great detail. They only know the basics. Yeah, I, I, I see your point. I guess this this is a bit more... Like bold's a bit more final in the same way that you don't need yeah. to appeal for a bold dismissal. Like bold, bold is is conclusive sure. when the bowl's removed. 
So I, I see your point about when the ball's skied, you can run until such time that it's been caught and returned to the wicketkeeper or the bowler's end for for run-out purposes. But mm. yeah, with this, it it might be that now this has happened because this could happen again. And that, yeah, I guess it's the role of the dice in cricket. These things can happen. And sure. you do see deflections off the stumps with, with run-outs, run out, but run that's out a little bit different. That that's not a little out. bit different because run out, with run-out attempts when they're not out, mm. like the ball remains live. If it's hit the stump and runs away to the boundary, it's a mid mm. point. Where in this case, the ball's hit the stump after the bowler sent it down and... Yes, I don't know. It's one for uh, our friends at the MCC and the ICC to take a look at after I, I the tournament. Think, Nothing I, will happen in the short term. I think both of those situations are still situations in which hitting the stumps could have dismissed a player and didn't, and then the ball is still alive after you've hit the stumps. Yeah. I think you know, that's, yeah. that's just one of the things you can consider as a bowler. What sort of ball are you going to try to bowl for, uh, for a free hit and, and how will you try to get away with that free hit? Without it costing you any runs, it's stiff. Um, to as I think Corbin Middlemass said on uh, after the game last night, you clean Bolvir at Coley and it costs you three runs. You know, <laughs> that, it doesn't seem fair, but a lot of things in cricket are not particularly fair. They're just that's how they are. Uh, Jeff, let's move on to do a few numbers. I'm going to let you uh, get into the swing of things because if I go into gear three, gear four, or anything beyond that, uh, that'll be the end of my voice for uh, three or four or five or many more days again. Well, let's just keep things subtle then for everybody. Let's say that we're going to play a game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. Uh, It's the reverse quiz. It's the game where you quiz us, the uh, lovely people of the internet, we make currently nine episodes a week during this World Cup is what we're up to for free because we like doing it. And then some people are beautiful and kind-hearted and they decide to help us fund that project and make all of the episodes that we're making. And they do that largely via the medium of Nerd Pledge, which means they send us in an amount of money that's not the normal coin or note amount. It's a very specific amount because the number relates to cricket in some way and we have to figure out what the number means. For instance, Alex Velyanovsky, who's a return pledger. We've had a couple of his numbers on the show before. Has sent through $3.37 in Australian currency and a clue as well. You don't have to send a clue, but you can. Like my last pledge, this is another Petersham slash New South Wales cricketer this one is the namesake of a defunct Adelaide department store. And Adam, when I saw a defunct Adelaide department store, I thought, if anything is in your hitting zone, it will be this. How did you go? Yeah, I, I didn't expect to be uh, jumping onto a Wikipedia page that documented all closed Australian department stores when I woke up this morning, but there you go. Did you rewatch the John Farnham Rundle Mall ad uh, as inspiration <laughs> before you got into this? No, no I didn't, but I, I have taken Rach down to Rundle Mall a couple of times and they've got those, um, it's a pig, isn't it? There's a pig that they have in the middle of Rundle Mall in, in bronze, um, which uh, she always mm. um, finds amusing. Right, so I, I worked out there were a few department stores in Adelaide sort of in the 20th century that, that haven't made it. Um, okay. Jay Craven, Miller Anderson, Moores, Foyan Gibson and John Martins. Now, going through it, there were no New South Wales cricketers uh, to play shield cricket called Craven. There are a couple called Miller. You might have heard of one of them, Keith, mm-hmm. um, but Keith Miller didn't play for for Petersham, so we ruled him out. Peter Anderson, no, not him. There are a number of Moors. Uh, there were no Foys. There was one Gibson, Ryan Gibson, but there was one Martin. There was one John Martin. Of course, it's Johnny Martin who we are talking about here oh, for yeah. Alex, who was indeed not only a New South Wales cricketer, but also a Petersham Marrickville cricketer in the era when that was what they were called before they were the Randy Peets. He was known as uh, the Little Fave because he was everyone's 
favourite player in the team, mate. He's one of those guys in the dressing room who oh, people yeah. gravitated around. He's he's a real um, Jim Maxwell story sort of regular, you know, Johnny Martin. Absolutely. Oh, Johnny Martin, yes. A wonderful, wonderful respite. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it's perfect Jim Maxwell era as well because he well his career is right when Jim's a kid there I suppose it's like what we've got those players Jeff who might not have had lavish international careers but because they played when we were growing up they mean more to us all so it was for Johnny Martin and the great Jim Maxwell so Johnny was born in July 1931 uh, and was a country boy his parents ran mm-hmm. the Beryl Creek post office which is near Tyree when he was 22 in 1953-54 he I went noticed. up to Sydney to play for Peter. Uh, just, Sorry, just, just as an in- intervention, I noticed, Adam, the post office in Birigara is up for sale um, when we were down there ah. shooting our segment in your the town near where your parents live. Um, so if anybody wants to buy oh, cool. a post office, there's, there's one on the market. It's, all, it's got a residence <laughs> attached. So, you know, you can be, it can be your, um, your tree change, business change, house and post office if you want to pop down there and have a look. Very quaint, very picturesque. Oh, visit victoria.com, get involved. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, <laughs> plan your Melbourne visit today. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, the thing was, Johnny was going to come to Sydney a couple of years earlier and play for the Newtown Jets in the, uh, oh. in the rugby league, the New South Wales Rugby League, which is kind of the hipster club these days, right? Like yeah. they play, the, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think they're like under 18s or under 19s play in the equivalent of the junior NRL, but they don't have a side in the right. in the top flight. Something like that. But a number of people I've hung out with in Sydney before. And when you go to pubs like the Nash in um, Newtown, they have all of the old Newtown mm. Jets posters on the wall and, and that kind of thing. They also have a lot of old VFL footy cards on the wall in that pub too, which is cool, from the 1970s. Anyway. Uh, I also just realised that means there must have been a point where um, the Sharks could play the Jets, you know, assuming that the Cronulla Club yes, was around, true. overlapping with Newtown. If you're a West Side Story fan, yeah. if, you get, if you're into a bit of clicking and a bit of dance fighting, the Sharks and the Jets <laughs> would have been coming up against each other. Absolutely. I'm not sure when. When, when did West Side Story, when was it written? Uh, it's sort of post-war, but, isn't it? I think so. Post-war? I mean, it's set, it's set post-war. It's written later than that, I think. But maybe, right. maybe it's like a 60s release and it's and it's pretending to be a 40s movie it's a bit like happy days <laughs> in yeah, some ways yeah. okay where are we yeah so right so our man johnny martin was going to go up and play for the newtown jets but he'd been at the scg as a 15 year old boy in 1946 watching mm. new south wales play england the day that both barnes and bradman made exactly 234 um, against the tourists and he he just wanted to play test cricket he didn't want to be a rugby league player he kept playing but that's not what was driving him he wanted mm-hmm. a he wanted a baggy green. So to facilitate this, noting that by 1953-54, he was running the post office because uh, he inherited it effectively from his dad and his mum. Mm. He had to get a train from Taree each Friday night that left at, I think it left at 9pm, would roll into Central at 6.45 in the morning. He'd play mm. his game of cricket and he'd be back on the train to Taree at 7.45 of an evening to get back to the post office in time for um, whatever they needed to do on a Sunday morning. So he'd do that every week just to play grade cricket in his early days. So he, it just kind of demonstrates that he, he was really chasing his dream really hard in his early 20s, balancing cricket alongside his commitments running the post office where he grew up. But I guess on the other side of the equation, he got to open the batting with Bobby Simpson at right. club cricket. So, you know, it, it's working out pretty well for him. He has a really good first couple of years. By 1956-57, he gets a Shield debut in the 100th first-class match for New South Wales against Queensland. That's at the Gabba. And he took Pfeiffer. And well, across two innings, five wickets and, and made 47. So a nice start for a guy who was more known for his bowling, but did have 
all-round abilities. He, he did uh, make a lot of runs as a great cricketer, and that did translate through to his New South Wales career from time to time. So he was a, a shield player for about a decade. But again, demonstrating how much he was, he wanted this test career, he actually nipped off to South Australia for one season, like just to give himself a, a point of difference, to give himself a chance. That didn't quite work, though, because he was behind Lindsay Klein in the queue in terms of left-arm bowlers. But in 1960-61, when the West Indies were around, he got to play with Lindsay Klein. The first of the two Melbourne tests of that series played across the New Year period. It started on the 30th of December. And that debut, I mentioned before, his first-class bow was made in the 100th first-class game for New South Wales against Queensland. His test debut was in the 500th test match ever held. So another milestone there. He received cap 216. Not that they, not that they knew what cap number they were back in those days, sure. but retrospectively, we know it was cap number 216. He makes 55, batting at number 10 in his first moment of test cricket. That's against, you know, Wes Hall, Frank Worrell, who he who he hits uh, uh, for a six, uh, Sonny Ramerton, Alf Valentine. So a really, a really top quality West Indies attack. But it's the second innings with the ball. So the Windies are struggling. They're forced to follow on. He takes three for 56 from, I think, 21 overs. That doesn't look particularly remarkable until you dig a bit deeper. When he starts a fresh spell, the Windies are 97 for two, and they're making a bit of a comeback. They're still 70 runs behind. But, you know, you can conceive of a scenario where Australia have a pretty nasty fourth innings run chase. Then in the space of four deliveries across two overs, gets Rowan Canai, Garfield Sobers for a duck and Frank Worrell for a duck. He's on a hat trick at one stage. He ensures that Worrell bags a pair. And yes, both Worrell and Sobers are caught at first slip by Bobby Simpson, who he used to open the batting with back in in grade cricket when he started his first class career in, in 1953. It didn't go quite so well the second time around. He had a poor test match at his home ground in Sydney and he was dropped for Adelaide. But he was back for the second Melbourne Test match, which Jeff had 90,800 people at it, which is more than last night, I thought was interesting because they were going through yesterday the, the all-time attendance records at the G. I'm pretty sure that 90,800 day one of the final test in 60-61 was overtaken in 13 Yeah, there was a 91 and a half or something in 13-14, the, the yeah. Mitchell Johnson... Um, Mitchell Johnson test was right, yeah. Test, and that was the biggest test attendance, about 91 and a half. And then I think the yeah. men's, I think the 2015 World Cup final was maybe 93 or 4 somehow. I don't know if they did different oh, right. seating arrangements or something, but I think that was up there as well. So, yeah, off the top of my head, that's that's what rings familiar. Yeah, because I think last night it was 90,000. 90 and a half, yeah. 50 odd. Yep. Yeah, it was less than, less than what it was in 61. That, that's what stood out. Anyway, so yes, Johnny Martin didn't uh, play a big role with the ball in that final test, but he was out there with the bat with Slasher Mackay at the end when Australia won by two wickets and, of course, went on to um, square the series. He had to wait three further years for another test match and that was against South Africa in, in uh, 1963-64 and, and he took four wickets and that combined with some stellar first-class form got him on the boat to England in 1964 was it the boat, Jeff? It might have been the plane by 64. I can't the remember. The boat 1964 or... was the last one to go by ship. I can tell the you that. The last one to go by ship. Because my answer, my, my number after your number, is in a very similar era. Oh, okay, okay. Well, anyway, he didn't play a test match when they got there on that boat. He played three more test matches away from home over the next two years, one in India, one in Pakistan, and one in South Africa. So eight all up, 17 test wickets at nearly 50, but uh, but he was better than that. And, yeah, Little Fave was a great tourist, and he took 445 first-class wickets at 31 when he retired. 
1968 and had a batting average of 24, which included one first-class century. The Johnny Martin Oval was named after him uh, when he passed away in 1992 of a heart attack at the age of 60. And, of course, that was in Tari where he worked in that post office. And But why 337? Absolutely no idea. I know it's Johnny Martin. It has to be Johnny Martin. I've tried every configuration as to why it might be 337 for Alex Velianovsky, but there's nothing there for me. So what we'll do, Alex, is if you can give us a bit of a steer as to where you were at with the number bit, we'll deal with that part of the Johnny Martin story in the confirmations next week. But I'm certain it'll be the man who played for Peter Schumacherville and uh, also is the same name as a department store that went out of business in Adelaide, uh, Johnny Martin. Maybe the 337 was like the address of Johnny Martin's in Adelaide, something like that. Or, or, or maybe it was yeah, to yeah. do with um, maybe it was to do with his his great career, his Petersham career, because it's it's definitely not in his top line numbers. But very confident with that one. Well done, Adam. knew knew that I was sending that to the right place when I elected uh, <laughs> not to take on that number myself. Second up, Sebastian Gears, also in Australian dollars, two dollars thirty, so two three zero. And um, look, I might be ripping off your shtick a bit here, but I thought two thirty. That's that's squarely in the dusty old bastard zone. Let's play the music. Right, rich pickings for cap number 230. If you're not familiar with the show, a dusty old bastard is somebody who played a very small amount of international cricket a long enough time ago that we haven't heard much about them. Uh, And we generally do them by cap numbers. Now, 230, it could be Lieutenant Colonel Ronald Staniforth for England, who played four tests in the 20s. It could be Jackie Dupria, who played two tests for South Africa in the 60s. Or it could be Rex Sellers, someone we've never spoken about on this show. Mm. I'm very confident. Haven't we? Real name Reginald, who played one test for Australia in 1964, the year we were just talking about. The first Asian man to play for Australia, Rex Sellers. He was of Anglo-Indian heritage, born in Gujarat, um, spent some years of his childhood growing up there and then... His family decided to get out in 1948 when sectarian violence was spilling over after Gandhi was assassinated and so the family got out and headed for Adelaide. His dad was a Bradman worshipper, loved the, loved the ideals of, of gentlemanly conduct and fair play in cricket. And his kids, he had two sons, Basil was the other one. That's a name that might be familiar. That might come up a little later in, in this segment. They got into cricket playing on the Maidans in India and Rex Sellers said that once he got to Adelaide um, and was not greeted particularly warmly given he was of a non-white racial extraction, playing sport was one of the ways to get accepted and to to find that he could get along more easily in Australian culture. So it's an interesting sort of time there because the white Australia policy is in place but the Anglo-Indians are a bit of an exception because because maybe they're able to pass as white more easily, that kind of thing. There's a, a cultural distinction there, and so they kind of go under the radar as far as the official racial discrimination of the country goes at that stage. So Rex Sellers is not particularly dark-skinned, but he cops a lot of shit nonetheless because, you know, people can sniff out when you're a tiny bit different and uh, be horrible to you for it. It's part of the way that humans do things. Um, So he gets into playing cricket, he gets into the school team, he ends up captaining the school team and he gets hooked by trying to master the art of leg spin, Uh, plays club cricket for Kensington and he's into the South Australian side by the age of 19. 
and does okay but doesn't take the world by storm. He plays three seasons, plays a bunch of games, but he's he's in a sort of mid-30s bowling average, uh, a lot like a lot of shield spinners these days where they're not quite dominating. And so he gets dropped after three seasons and he thinks that's it. And it's interesting how the perception of age works differently then. He was like, well, I'm getting on a bit. I'm 21. It's time to start a small business <laughs> and, uh, and do things differently. Probably not what you're doing at 21 these days. So he, he opens a small shop. He misses a full year of shield cricket and, and he's not really playing high-level cricket. But there's a, a guy called Howard Mutton who was very briefly a first-class cricketer for South Australia as well, had played five, five shield games. And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting, maybe Howard Mutton said, I don't want you to go the same way that I went. I want you to have more of an opportunity. Howard Mutton comes in and badges him in the shop and says, you have to keep practising because you're good, you're a good bowler, you've got what it takes. And so cue a rocky montage. Howard Mutton makes him get up at 6am every morning for a year and go and do bowling practice just on their own, just just like Shaheen Afridi's batting practice over the last few months. And he gets much better. His bowling improves. So after missing a season, he makes a comeback for club cricket, he plays really well, and he gets back into the Shield team, goes to the MCG and beats Victoria, taking eight wickets in the match. Ian Chappell's playing in that match. He says that Rex Sellers ambushed and steamrolled the Victorians. That was the the quintessentially subtle Chappelle interpretation of that. And then things go off from that point. So uh, Les Favelle, who is the South Australian captain at the time, he backs Rex Sellers to the hilt, loves Rex Sellers, leaves him on, doesn't drag him out of the attack if he gets hit a bit, is always backing him to take wickets. And a fellow you mentioned before, Garfield Sobers, is playing for South Australia that season, bowling some spin, bowling some pace. And they form a deadly partnership. They both take nearly 50 wickets in the season. They carry South Australia to the shield that year. And uh, they have a bit of a bond because they both suffer a bunch of racist bullshit on the field as well. And so they, they're, they're bonded together, sellers and sobers. And there's this great anecdote about um, there's a point where they play the touring South African side. And so um, Ian Chappell tells this story where he says sobers goes and asks Les Favelle if um, while he's batting he can wear his West Indies cap instead of his South Australian cap. <laughs> And Les Favelle says, sure, and Sobers goes out and absolutely loots 155 off the South Africans after he's already taken four wickets in the first innings. Um, <laughs> sets up a big win and Chappell asks him after the game why he decided to wear the West Indies cap and uh, Sobers said, well, they had never seen one before and I thought they should have a good long look. <laughs> Which is a classic intervention. So... 1964, Sellers gets into the test squad. Uh, the British press, Adam, protests about this. They say this isn't fair because he's not really huh. Australian because he's got a British passport and he was born in India. And so Bob Menzies intervenes and uh, expedites a citizenship. And I thought this might be, this is a, this is a little relevant given um, Fawad Ahmed, Julia Gillard, etc. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that he was sort of fast-tracked to citizenship, although I'll stand to be corrected on that point. It was that... One of the steps along the way uh, when he was granted the status to stay in Australia, and that was like, I think from memory, Brendan O'Connor was the immigration minister at the time, which just smoothed the way a little bit. And CA did some important advocacy work there as well in kind of making the case that, in, in Farwood's case, that not only was he an asylum seeker upon arrival but uh, and thus could fear persecution if he was sent home, but also that like 
guys, he's about to play for Australia. So, you know, <laughs> let's make this work. Yeah. Um, I, that's that's my very shorthanded memory of that. But, yeah, I know a lot of people that worked at CA were very proud when Fawad Ahmed got those opportunities subsequently because, you know, they really went, to, really went to bat for him with the government and um, did what was needed. So Robert Menzies, the Prime Minister at the time, steps in, uh, makes sure that his citizenship is finalised and he's good to go, goes to England, goes over on the boat, and wakes up on the morning of the first game. It's the the old Arundel Castle game to kick off the tour as mm. per tradition. And his hand is buggered. He's got this really sore hand. And so he can't play and he goes and sees a doctor and they find a, a big cyst under his thumb on his bowling hand. So he can't grip the ball properly. He has to have an operation, get the cyst cut out. It costs him weeks of the tour. He comes back towards the end of the tour and plays some of the tour matches, but can't get into the test team. Uh, Tom Vivers is pretty well set as the spinner by that time. The Australian team's going okay. They've had a couple of draws and a, and a win. You were just thinking about um, William McInnes doing an impersonation sure of was. Vic Vivers, weren't you? <laughs> Tom Vivers' brother. <laughs> Cousin, I think. <laughs> Cousin, sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like how I know exactly the shorthand that your brain went to at that point. <laughs> Vic Vivers doing the um, the Sheffield Shield coverage on TV in the 80s. If, if you haven't listened to the William McInnes interview, well worth it for that Please alone. So, uh, so he can't get into the test team, which he was pretty much on track to do at that point. And he bowls pretty well in the tour games, but his hand keeps hurting after every game. It, it's not, he knows there's something wrong. He gets in the squad to go to India and he's given a hero's welcome as a returning player, as, you know, one of us, one of us, sort of Usman Khawaja in Pakistan style. Doesn't get picked for the first couple of test matches and eventually they, I think, just decide they need to make sure that they give him at least one game on the tour. He gets his spot in the third test and unfortunately it's a, it's a damp squib. It mostly gets rained off, so he gets one hit with the bat, gets to bowl a few overs and it's a washed-out draw, but he does get his test cap. And when he gets back to Australia, they find a second bigger cyst that's worse than the other one and that's more difficult going to be more difficult to try to extract and, and might do long-term damage to the hand and he says you know what I can't do this anymore and, and has to give his bowling away so he said later it was very difficult never really getting to find out whether he was good enough you know he thought maybe he was good enough but he didn't actually get to test it at the the top level over a prolonged period of time but he threw himself into every other part of cricket and the sport he played club cricket, uh, turned himself into a batter, coached club cricket as well, was a long-term sports administrator, vice president at the Saka for a long time, was president of the Woodville West Torrens footy club after there was a merger that created that club, chaired the Les Favelle Foundation, which was a charity to help disadvantaged youth in Adelaide and uh, shares those sort of attributes with his brother Basil Sellers, which is a name that you will see if you walk around the MCG, you'll see a Basil Sellers gate or, or entrance or something like that on Driver Avenue around near the members' gates. And uh, Basil Sellers is a, a philanthropist and he's been on just about every board or, you know, voluntary organisation in Australia. And also funded the statues um, that, Adam, that you wrote about extensively when you were researching the the sporting hero statues at the SCG, that was a Basil Sellers intervention. So a, a pretty useful contribution all round from the family that arrived in 1948 from Gujarat and threw themselves into contributing to Australian life. Uh, that is the cap number, 230 of Rex Sellers. Yeah, it's interesting. The reason when you sort of started that off and said we haven't done Rex Sellers on the show before when, for Sebastian Gears is, is uh, that I just assumed we must have and 
maybe that's because before we started making story time, I've thought and written quite a lot about both of them. In the case of Basil, I interviewed him a number of times when writing that long essay for the Cricket Monthly about the sculptures. It, it really is his idea. It was his brainchild to have these sculptures. So the Basil Cellar Centre is what you're referring to that's on Driver Avenue, which I think it's the Sydney Swans Academy are based there or something like yeah, that. Yeah, But yeah, right. he, wanted, he wanted to see... He did so much as a businessman. He was known for kind of going into companies that were struggling and saving them. And he also served as the, I want to say the boss of Fosters for a time when, when it was um, up and about in the 80s when it was all happening in that industry. But he was involved in the media too. And uh, yeah, he, he, he's he got um, an enormous art collection. So there was that crossover. And it's easy to say that he bankrolled those projects, Sydney and Adelaide specifically, because uh, SCG Sydney is where his home ground is these days and Adelaide Oval, his original home ground. But he was the... The, the heart and soul behind those projects as well. So once they finished in Sydney, they they replicated. I think it was eight sculptures at Sydney and eight at Adelaide, um, which finished about, let's say, 10 years ago or something like that. In fact, we might have been at the unveiling of the last one. Clem Hill might have been the final one in 1718. Right. We were at during that Ashes Test Match, Jeff. But yeah, they're, they're brilliant. I always make a point of photographing them whenever we're in Adelaide for that, that Test Match each year. Uh, and he was the, the driving force behind that and generally speaking, just a great man who's given so much back to sport and cricket. And the way you summed it up as well, a family who came over here after the war have added considerably to the country and, and, and the game that, that we that we cover and love. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Next number, Andrew Lowcock, Swing Low, uh, $13.62 AUD. Uh, generous pledge. Thank you, Andrew. There's a, there's no clue. There's a free hit. Adam, what have you got? Yeah, so uh, Andrew's been with us before. I think this might be a re-up. I'll say a few things. So Andrew is a great man, uh, a friend of mine, um, one of the best goalkeepers you could ever take the five-a-side floor with. He was a, a teammate at one of the many clubs that have worn orange on Sunday afternoons around the world. I say around the world, we've had the original side in Melbourne, which was Benny Hill Unathletic, which started in 2001. And then there was the uh, then there was the Canberra franchise, as we called it, which started when I moved up there with some friends who'd previously played in the Melbourne team. Our arch rivals were called FC Medina, which was James Masola's side, who now works for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. So we, we merged the two teams together upon us all arriving in Canberra. Real Benny Medina United. Uh, so we played a couple of seasons um, in the Canberra comp, or a few years actually in the Canberra comp. Then it moved to London, uh, where it was just known as Athletic FC. And indeed, Athletic FC was in operation as recently as I I think two years ago in Peckham uh, with a bunch of the Wisdom guys who we've had on the podcast. We've now gone back to just playing sort of social football on Fridays. But for a time, we were in the league, maybe three or four years. Uh, and now it's back just in Melbourne in Benny Hill, uh, unathletic. And I hope that Andrew is still goalkeeping there as well because he's from Melbourne and uh, he bleeds red, white and blue. He's a rabid Footscray supporter. Andrew54 on Twitter, a great follow. I'd be staggered if this isn't Anthony Stewart's one-day bowling average. In fact... I, I'd go as far to say as I'm certain that Andrew would have been at the cricket ground in 
January 1997 when Anthony Stewart took his hat-trick against Pakistan that wasn't enough to put Australia in the finals, which is part of the reason why that was the end of his international career. Despite taking 5 for 26 in that final group game, the fact that they didn't advance through meant that he was a discard along with a a number of others. It might have been, um, I said 6-7, it might have been 97-98 on reflection. Either way, that was the performance that ended his all-too-brief international career, Anthony Stewart. And we have talked about that in some depth times, recently, yeah. Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, and I suspect that Andrew's pledge or his re-up has come in since we've done that long chat. So, look, in brief, Anthony Stewart then moves on to play at the Canberra Comets and after a couple of years of finishing as an Australian player, it does kind of mm. fade away rather quickly. But he does go on to coach in New Zealand and coach the New South Wales state team. These days he's in footy administration, coaching development manager in New South Wales. So, I mean, he did go on to remain in sport. But yes, his last appearance was when he took that hat-trick, uh, the, the third wicket of those taken safely by Mark Taylor at first slip and all of them were... We're caught behind the wicket, running in from the, the great southern stand-in, so you can never right. take that away from a cricketer, even if it was a, a brief thing. Their ODI careers ended together then, he and Mark Taylor, presumably. Oh, yeah, that's right. I hadn't considered that. I, I think mm. that Mark Taylor did make way not long after. He got, he, he he got was, the uh, chop after that, didn't he? Because he was, they, you know, they, yeah. they didn't make the that final. That sounds about right so to me. One day renewal had to happen. Sacrifice had to be made to ensure that there was yeah. a good harvest the following year. Yeah, that sounds about right. So I reckon that's where Andrew's going. I should say one more thing about him, by the way, is that when I um, moved to Canberra, a number of people uh, took over the responsibility of housing my cat. He was one of them. In fact, I think my cat died at age 20 on his watch. I remember it was Valentine's Day 2011 and I was in Paris on a work trip and I got a phone call saying, uh, your cat's dead. Um, it would have been um, less blunt than that, but it's what happened. Uh, but he did me a great turn there. So, um, Andrew, uh, great to have you with us on the <laughs> final word stuff as well. What I'm going to do for you is I am going to do another, another answer because, again, we've done Anthony Stewart before. So what I'm going to invite our friends on Discord or elsewhere... Let's find a 13 for 62 and let's do it justice. Let's find a – there's never been one in test cricket and the database that I work with doesn't quite have that degree of information for 13 for yep. in, a, in a game. It, it cuts off at 13 for 50. Yep. So 13 for 62, I, I can't – I don't have it the, at the end of my fingers, but right. there'll be one. And what there'll I'll do in the confirmation, I'll tell the best of the 13 yep. for 62s that are out there. What do you think the um, – you know, if we could we do a best ever Canberra Comets 11, you know? Mur- oh, yeah. Murph Hughes would yeah. probably make it. Brad Haddon's probably taken the gloves. Nathan so. Lyon, Nathan Lyon's there. I mean, he yeah. didn't play for the Comets in the uh, in, in the uh, in the yep. glory days of the Mercantile Mutual, but um, he did play. Mark Higgs would be there. Um, he went on to play for Australia in um, in white ball mm. cricket. He was a a Canberra Comet, ACT Comet, I think it was called by then, but still the the Comet brand. John O'Rose, who uh, you mentioned yep. the other day, Jeff, is um, being is he the assistant coach of the PMs Eleven? Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, yep, right. um, there'll be a, there'll there'll have to be at least one Solway. They are the most mm. like prolific family in Canberra cricket. I think Peter Solway played for the Comets in those two or three seasons when they were in the Mercantile Mutual. So, yeah, that, that's the sort of job. You know, well, you know, he'll take that on with some enthusiasm. Andrew Dono Donison, mm. um, he would love nothing more than to pull together the best side to ever play yep. for team of the, the ACT in in the Comets era. So let's draw a line. It's got to start from say anything from '98 onwards. Yep. Yeah, team of the first century of the Comets, even though that century is only currently 24 <laughs> years old. Why not? Uh, Matt Keane is our next number. 
In the Great British Pound, uh, as troubled as it might recently be, £1.43 is the number. Yeah, it'll be back in business now with Boris Johnson saying that he's not going to return to the to the Prime Ministership uh, overnight. I think the pound might do okay out of that. Uh, the clue, continuing the well, theme from out. my first... Yesterday pl- it was all that he was back and now he's gone again. You, you missed the news. Oh. You missed the news. Yeah, he he said, yeah, for the first time ever, Boris Johnson has pulled out. Uh, he said that, um, that he has 102 MPs who are willing to support him, uh-huh. um, which was the threshold. So he said that. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, right, champion. If you had 102 MPs, you wouldn't be pulling out. And said he realised it was in the best interest of the Conservative Party that he not run in okay. the in, in an environment where the where the party's so divided. So, uh, in other well, words, he was not going to reach 100. He was not yep. going to reach the 100 threshold, and has pulled out before he was eliminated in a couple of days. Okay. Strong vibes of um, oh, I could slam dunk a basketball if I wanted to. I, I just don't want. I just don't want to yes. do it right now because I think that would be bragging. <laughs> so I'm not going to show off and do it, but I could totally do it if I wanted to do it. Yeah, I can dunk. Yeah, as as, as Nick TV said, it's like oh yeah, the, I've got uh, yeah yeah I've, I've of course got a girlfriend. She lives in the next town. You yeah, just don't know. Yeah, her. you haven't met her. Yeah, yeah. but she's she, yeah, yeah. She, yeah she's the hottest girl at school. Yeah, yeah, you would you wouldn't know her. Um, right, so Matt Keane, there's a clue, Adam. He's got a clue. Okay, let's do it. Continuing the theme from my first pledge, which was double zero, my pledge this time is 143. Clue, this marathon shift could be considered to be one of my two favourite E's finest moment. Okay, well, favourite E's, that's a... um that's a category from the early 2000s that we could go into at quite some depth. but <laughs> Do the, we, we, can, we can get into the Melbourne Shuffle after this. <laughs> head, down to, uh, head down to Billboard's, not Billboard's Nightclub, <laughs> teriyaki on a Thursday night. Uh, <laughs> Sunday, what was it, Sunday school? Yeah, that was on the Sunday. And the sunny side on the Friday. Yeah, you could have a pretty, um, pretty packed weekend. Right, 143. I thought marathon shift. I thought, are we talking about a number of overs, bold? in a match here. And I knew it wasn't a test match because 129 is the test match record mm-hmm. by Sonny Ramadan, who came up earlier in the show. So Indeed. I was thinking, is this first class? Is there a 143 overs in a first class game? Well, there have only been three longer bowling shifts in a match than Sonny Ramadan's in terms of deliveries bowled because you've got different lengths of overs, which makes things confusing. There's a player named John Peaton, Python, Piton, uh, who played for Transvaal in the 1890s, who bowled 161 overs in a match, took 13 wickets and also made 26 and 37 batting down the order and they still lost by 58 runs. Oh. <laughs> You'd be pretty dark on everybody else in your team at that point. Like not a thrashing. They were, they were in there. They were in mm. with a decent chance. Did everything in every innings um, and couldn't quite get there. Clary Grimmett bowled 51 and 55 overs and those would have been eight ball overs because he bowled 848 deliveries in a match compared to 805 for John Piton. I'm going to go with the French pronunciation just mm-hmm. because it's more fun. That was in a timeless match. When New South Wales made 642 in the first innings and 593 in the second innings, that's some rough work to beat South Australia. Uh, and the clubhouse leader with 917 deliveries bowled is C.S. Nayadu, not C.K. Nayadu, but C.S. Nayadu. When Bombay played Holkar in the Ranji final of 1945, he bowled 65 overs in the first innings, 88 overs in the second innings, took a six-fer and a five-fer and made a 50 when he batted in between times and still lost the game. None of those equal 143 overs, though, no matter how long the overs are. So... 
that was just a divergence that I thought was interesting. So none of those are, are right. And, and there's the E, the clue with the E, one of my two favourite E's. And, and what I really wanted to work, Adam, was I thought Eddie Hemmings is E.E. Hemmings. So you've got E.E. E. Cummings and E.E. E. Hemmings. And when Matt says one of my two favourite E's, it's like there are two E's in Eddie Hemmings' initials. Is there anything involving a 143 in terms of overs, bold? But there's not. There's, there wasn't anything that I could find. There might be something buried more deeply, but I couldn't find anything. And the only other thought I had was Matt said his previous pledge was the naught for naught, and that was that involved a county team, I think it was Brearley captaining, when they declared on naught for naught in order to fiddle the situation with the county championship table and, and try to get a result yeah, going. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a one day cup game, um, and they got. They got um. It wasn't really. It was. It was. Uh, I know. I know. Somerset were playing. Um. I can't remember who they yeah. were playing. But the the, the upshot One was of that, that era. they they got kicked out of the competition and they changed the rules immediately to to, to mean that. Yeah, I think again. it. I think it was because it that would mean that their run rate wasn't damaged or something like That's that. That's right. So, so the, the, the idea they, being exactly it. So the the idea was that if they didn't bat, their run rate couldn't be hurt and thus they could guarantee progress without facing a ball. Yep. And so they did – and they, they lost the game, but that didn't matter because their run rate was still enough. The only way they could not make yeah. the, the next stage was to lose and have their run rate go down. and With a bad run rate. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, so, so that sort of era of English cricket and I thought – that's kind of John Embury territory. Ooh. And he could be someone's favourite E. He could be yeah. an E that somebody enjoyed. Now, here's a thought. Here's a, here's a proposal. 1980, third test match, West Indies leading 1-0, five to play. So if they win at Old Trafford, it means they're 2-0 up and they can't lose the series. A lot at stake. They send England in and bowl them out for 150. And Clive Lloyd comes out and makes a ton. They're all set for a massive lead. And then John Embury comes on gets Clive Lloyd out, gets a couple more wickets, takes three for 10 at the end of the innings to wrap things up quickly. So England are still 110 behind, but they're not 200 behind, which they probably would have been if Clive Lloyd had batted on. There's a lot of rain in this match. They lose a full day at some stage. And on the final day, the English are in strife. They're six wickets down. They're 180 in front. It's just after lunch, so there's still most of the day to play, which means if they get bowled out quickly, West Indies should be able to chase those runs and win the match. And the resistance comes against Roberts holding Garner Marshall. It's John Embury who bats for over an hour and a half, well down the order, makes 28 not out, and batting alongside Peter Willey save the test match. The innings, how long did they bat? 143 overs in the fourth innings. What was our number? 143, a marathon shift, a favourite, a finest moment for a favourite E, John Embury. It's not definitely the right answer, but it could be the right answer. Matt, yeah. send me a message. Let me know. No, I like it. I like it. I also like the fact that Embry doing it with Willie, uh, that, that, um, mm. that makes me happy on a different level. It's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, right. So where are we? Is that the, I think that's going to be the end of our new numbers. Now, I'm going to do something we haven't done in a while, which is throw a couple of numbers back to Discord. This was with a view to answering them more suitably. Uh, when we come back and record next week in these kind of stop-start story times that aren't quite as nourishing as they might be. But we did do an episode with 28 numbers in it just a fortnight ago. So, you know, we're trying. It's not through a lack of effort. Um, So the first of those is Joel Burton, 550. He's next in the queue. He said with his clue it could also have been 519 or 530 for what he describes as a very brave individual. Uh, My first thoughts were just simply 
players who went on and did special things after getting injured. Malcolm Marshall batting with the plaster cast on. Um, Anil Kumble with the broken face. Graham Smith with the broken thumb. John Edrich, we spoke when he passed away about when he would come out to bat bruised and batted likewise Brian Close. Michael Clark and the broken shoulder at Cape Town. You and Chatfield returning to cricket so bravely after nearly dying. I mean, there are a lot. Patsy Hendren Patsy coming Hendren. out of hospital, checking out a hospital to come and save a test match. I mean, there are there are loads of options, and I've ran a lot of them through the the mainframe, so to speak, and none of them are spitting out those numbers at me. So I must be missing something here, and that's fine. That's often the case, but yes, if anyone can can sense where five fifty, mm. five nineteen, and five thirty are in relation to a brave cricketer, that might help get us out towards where Joel wants us to be next week. And it, it has to be hundreds because it's, so it's five pounds fifty, but the clue says could have been five nineteen or five thirty. Yes, that's right. Five hundred and nineteen or five hundred and thirty. So the number's five hundred and fifty. Yeah, I I spent a while looking at this as well and just couldn't get my head around the formulation of the clue. So have a little have a little think about it. If you're on the the chat page on the Discord channel, have have a have a little stew, give it a stir, see what comes up, and we'll come back to it, Joel. I got one from uh, from James Ralston, and I, I want to spend more time on this. I have already spent some time on this, but I feel like it's it's almost within my grasp, but I'm not sure. $16.10, nice pledge. And the clue says, a world record many wouldn't know about. Occurred in 2015, both teams contributed to the record. And the first thing I thought was, uh, I thought, we've talked about a couple of crazy innings in local cricket before and I looked back through yeah. our notes and I there was there was a time we spoke on the show I'm pretty sure about a fellow called Matthew Cox who was playing for Turidin in the West Gippsland Cricket Association T20 comp he was a DDCA ones player you know obviously knew how to bat so he makes 176 Turidin make 322 for three in 20 overs and the reason it rang a bell for me was because that's the run rate in that inning, 16.1 per over. Our ah. number is 16.10. But it's the wrong year. I mean, I could argue that both teams contribute to it because the bowling team has to bowl badly enough to get hit for 300 runs in a T20 game, um, although they were playing on a postage stamp. But it happened in 2018, not 2015. So then I thought, 2015, right. how do we get this in 2015? I thought, is it two teams combining for a scoring rate of 16.1 per over across, say, the end of a one-day innings and the start of the reply, something like that. And I thought South Africa in the World Cup that year, for instance, crazy scoring rate towards the back end of the innings, went and had a look at that, but the West Indies batted slowly at the start of their reply, so it couldn't be that one. I haven't had time to manually go through every World Cup game from 2015 and try to work out if there's something that works there, which I will do, James. I'm prepared to do it. But maybe if uh, if you can let me know if I'm if I would be going down the wrong track there, and my other thought is that it could be something to do with combined runs during a test match. But again, I haven't had time to look at every test match played in 2015 to try to work out if you know something to do with 1,610 runs scored for the lowest number of wickets that that many runs have been scored for, something like that in a big board draw situation. That's where I'm. That's where my thoughts are and that's where I've started looking. So if people want to follow up those sort of paths, they're welcome to and James will come back to it in a future week. And, and along these lines, uh, Peter Roberts, uh, check your DMs. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get to the bottom yeah. of your number. So if you can, if you can um, uh, see, see uh, what Jeff and I have said to you, then we will hopefully uh, be able to knock off uh, your 
latest pledge on Storytime 111 next week. Before we go, we'll do a few confirmations, Jeff. The first of those is from Chris Arkell, 591. Now, we were ever so proud of ourselves answering with uh, Intercar Balam taking 591 uh, twice in the same test match at Dhaka. 1969 that prompted a little bit of follow-up correspondence in last week's show but chris says i think there is some confusion with my 591 pledge i sent a clue a while back and it was solved by adam as a revisit i don't remember doing that but apparently it happened uh, it was Derek underwood's only century and he holds the record for the most innings before 100 it also included terry alderman's only 50 and a tied match anyway adam's intercup alarm fact was far better thank you chris i must admit i don't know how that happened but hey the fact that it led us down the path of learning that fact that it's the uh, the highest runs conceded and the most wickets taken on those metrics where a player's had twin figures in the same test match, we never would have worked that out anyway. So thanks to you. We, we wouldn't have. It must have, it must have just come up Fate. a second time in the notifications or something and got into the list twice, some, some sort of quirk like that. Sometimes patron is a bit buggy, um, Chris. And, but, hey, you got a free nerd pledge out of it. Happy days. Uh, Evan Granger, we said uh, Michael Hussey's 122 versus South Africa at the MCG would be the innings to reflect his pledge of $1.22. He said, it is. Well done. No fuss, Huss. And he's cracking 122. He couldn't do a thing wrong at that point in his career, even managing a ton starting from 20-odd with Glenn McGrath. I was helping my dad landscape the front yard while listening to ABC Radio at the time. A magic summer. Looking forward to formulating a new nerdy for 2023. That's the first time I've ever seen an abbreviation of Nerd Pledge to a nerdy. Uh, I should have said earlier on in story time that we had a, um, a final nerds catch up last night in Sydney, which I couldn't attend due to my aforementioned uh, illness slash uh, friends from Sydney having already arranged to, to meet me on the Sunday night where I'm staying with other mates from my Canberra day. So it just wasn't viable on, on either front. But the, about eight of our final nerds in Sydney caught up uh, to watch the India-Pakistan game, which was really lovely. And hopefully we can do it again uh, when Jeff, you and I are both in Sydney for the One Day International, which is about a month from now or something like that. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep doing these around around the country. And as for live shows, we're frankly just too busy to work it out right now, but we will. It's on our list of things to do. Yeah, it's going to happen. Uh, bear with us. Uh, and Dane Hanstead said that his $3.14 was indeed Pavel Florin's best T20 international bowling figures of three for 14. Such a love and enthusiasm for the game, says Dane, and he also uh, reports that Namibia and Scotland did get to take the field in Wangaratta. They were not entirely rained off for their warm-up game for the World Cup that Dane's bakery was providing the catering for. So it's nice when all of our final word threads circle around and join together again. It is nice when a plan comes together. Jeff, we said we'll record for about an hour and my recorder has just ticked over 60 minutes. It'll be less than that in the version you're listening to once all the bad bits have been edited out by our team, specifically Dave Collins, who we love. Thank you, DC, for being with us week in, week out. Thank you to everybody who sends pledges through uh, patreon.com forward slash the final word. If you've listened this far, you know exactly how it works, but you send through... uh, a number of currency and then you get in the queue and then we solve it and you can also join our discord page we keep getting dms from our kind of long-standing patrons asking to be what's this discord business all about and we send them the backdoor key and they get in there and they bloody love it so what if, if that's what you want if you want ongoing conversation if you want to have that shared experience if you're watching india pakistan last night on the sofa or on twitter or something like that but you want to experience moments like that with other like-minded individuals well our discord channel might just be the place for mm-hmm. you so um, once you're on patreon discord comes automatically and if you want to be somewhere uh, where you can talk about the cricket and no one's going to yell at you or be a dick (laughs) then that's the place to be it is a very rare pleasure on the internet 
and that is something that has miraculously uh, grown, sprouted out of this podcast. And thank you to James Hurley, who looks after all of our social media channels. If you don't already follow us on there, we've been posting clips and YouTube clips as well, uh, which have been a big part of our, our daily shows with you know more camera angles than historically has been the case. And uh, they'll keep uh, coming thick and fast uh, throughout the course of the next three weeks or so. All right, that's it. Story time 110 is complete. Uh, we'll do it all again next week, and um, I'm going to go and lay down for a while. Speak to you on the Daily Show uh, later in the day. Bye. See ya. I had to go.